0: ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music, and more.
1: If you're an astronaut, it doesn't get much better than a prize ticket to the moon. And in April, NASA named the three men and one woman who'd won the lunar jackpot.
0: I'm Christina Cook. I'm a mission specialist. I'm Jeremy Hanson. I'm a mission specialist. I'm Victor Glover. I'm the pilot. I'm Reed Wiseman. I'm the commander for the Artemis II mission to the, to the moon. To the moon. To the moon. To the moon.
1: They will join an elite club. Only 24 people, all Americans, have been to the moon, and just 12 have walked on its surface. The last flight was in 1972. Hello, I'm Kathy Van Extel. Since Soviet Yuri Gagarin was strapped into a tiny capsule attached to a ballistic missile in 1961, hundreds of others have followed him into space. Almost 90% are men. The gender divide is slowly changing and NASA's lunar mission is a pivotal moment for women as humans look to make another giant leap by putting boots on Mars in coming decades. In this episode of Rear Vision, we look at the history of women in space and the mission to blast through the glass ceiling to the Moon and beyond.
0: And liftoff of Artemis One, we rise together back to the Moon and beyond.
1: Following last year's successful Artemis One unmanned mission to the Moon and back, NASA is busy preparing for Artemis II. Next year's 10-day mission to circle the Moon the final test flight before an actual lunar landing by 2030. Of the four astronauts selected for Artemis II, Christina Cook will be the first woman to go to the Moon. For NASA Chief Bill Nelson, diversity is a key element of the Artemis mission.
0: We choose to go back to the Moon and then on to Mars... And over the course of the Artemis missions, the first woman and the first person of colour will take giant leaps on the lunar surface. And now step off the land now. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind.
1: Those immortal words by Neil Armstrong hark back to a time in the history of space exploration when it was impossible for a woman to have uttered them. In fact, it took the Americans another 14 years after the moon landing to send their first woman into space. Now it looks like a woman will finally have the chance to kick her own cloud of moon dust. Since the first moon landing in 1969, successive US presidents have chased the dream of conquering space.
2: For the new century, back to the moon, back to the future, and this time back to stay.
0: Our third goal is to return to the moon by 2020 as the launching point for missions beyond. I understand that some believe that we should attempt a return to the surface of the moon first, as previously planned. But I I, I just have to say,
3: we've been there before. The directive I'm signing today will refocus America's space program. It marks an important step in returning American astronauts to the moon. President Biden. Yes. Hey, Artemis Team 2, how are you all doing? Look, I want to thank you for your incredible service. The mission you're about to go on, the United States can return.
1: A 21st century return to the moon was first flagged in 1989 by George Bush Sr. on the 20th anniversary of the Apollo mission. Since then, the return lunar mission has, like the moon itself, waxed and waned. Amy Shearer Title is a space historian and author.
3: A lot of presidents want to have their Kennedy moment. One administration will kind of put forward this grand idea of going into space and then the next administration will come in and say, well, this is completely out of budget and they'll kind of curtail that plan. But then there's so much that's been already developed that they can't outright cancel it. So then you have to kind of keep going. So this the program has definitely changed and evolved over the years. I mean, I think at one point the first lunar mission was supposed to be like 2017 and
1: when did NASA start talking about a woman being included on the next moon landing? And let's interrogate what the politics of that might be.
3: Because <laughs> that's the really interesting question, if you ask me. It's been the last, like, I want to say two or three years of when NASA started using the verbiage, basically, of next man and first woman on the moon, which I believe they've now expanded to next man, first woman, first person of color on the moon. The kind of definition of what the mission is has been steadily evolving as the program's gotten closer and closer to actual missions.
1: So NASA recently announced Christina to be a member of the Artemis 2 mission, which will fly around the moon. Does that Mm -hmm. put her in a prime position for the lunar landing?
3: Timelines are a whole thing. We don't currently have the technology to land on the moon. So no one can say when that mission will go. No one can say who will be available or fit or or the most qualified at that time. We've seen missions that were supposed to go up being pushed back. And it, it happens. I mean, space is really hard. So, you know, I think the last flight of the program is currently supposed to be like end of the decade. And so it's all kind of, you know, we're going on the future excitement of it right now space pilot whom the Russians have deified as the man of the century arrives at
1: the airport outside of Moscow for his first public appearance. Questions that have arisen
0: in the West about the validity of his flight have no place here today. As the
1: Soviet cosmonaut up, Yuri Gagarin was the first person to fly in space, ushering in the new space age and paving the way for the first woman, Soviet Valentina Tereshkova, just two years later. The mission to send a woman into space was the product of the Cold War, a Soviet race to beat the Americans. And it happened all because of fake news.
3: Valentina Tereshkova launched almost as a direct result from Jerry Cobb raising hell with... NASA trying to get herself into space. She was getting so much media attention. And the Soviet Union was reading all of this and kind of keeping, it, keeping tabs on what was going on in the West and saw that they were looking at launching a woman, potentially. You know, the media was talking about Jerry like she was going to go up and thought, well, if, if they're going to do it, we got to beat them to it. Because at the time, Soviets had, you know, first satellite, first living thing in space, first human, first multi-person with two missions at the same time. So, this was an idea of getting a woman up there to score another first. And it was like they recognized that it was a big psychological victory for the Soviet Union. And What they did was take a bunch of women who had a key qualification, which was they were parachutists, because the Vostok spacecraft that Tereshkova flew in did not land with the cosmonaut inside. She actually had to eject at 10,000 feet, which is insane. (laughs) She was a rock star to go up there and actually ride on a rocket and do this. You know, this is nothing to take away from the bravery of it. But if you try to argue that Tereshkova opened the door for Soviet women, you know, it was 19 years before another woman flew in space. And it was it was another Soviet, Svetlana Savitskaya, whom the Soviets launched because NASA announced that Sally Ride was going to go up. So these first two women in space were direct reactions of the Soviets to American announcements or perceived announcements of women going up into space.
1: So the Soviets beat the U.S. in sending a woman into space twice. The Soviets also won the race for the first female spacewalk, Svetlana Savatskaya pipping America's Kathy Sullivan by a few months in 1984. It was 25-year-old Valentina Tereshkova, a textile factory worker and amateur skydiver, who became the first woman to smash the space glass ceiling. On June 16, 1963, the Soviets launched her on the Vostok 6 a solo mission orbiting Earth 48 times over nearly three days. It was a bittersweet milestone for acclaimed American pilot, Jerry Cobb, who'd been part of a privately funded project to test women pilots for astronaut fitness. A world record holder for speed, altitude and distance, Jerry Cobb had the qualifications needed at the time to be an astronaut, if she'd been a man. In 1961, she was recruited by physicist Randy Lovelace to test his theory that women, being smaller and lighter, were more suited to space than men. The women he tested are now known as the Mercury 13, a term coined by a Hollywood producer in the 90s.
3: He had worked with the Air Force. He worked with NASA because NASA knew he was very thorough and very discreet and He was curious about testing women and somehow it's not entirely clear because there are different stories about how Jerry Cobb ended up doing the medical tests, but he put her through the same medical tests as the astronauts and she performed quite well. And she was really interested in this idea of getting more women together. And for Randy Lovelace, this was a medical curiosity and he was kind of thinking of putting forward their names to NASA should they ever need it. But Jerry Cobb treated it like, well, they're now... The sisterhood of the traveling space pants and they're all in this together but in reality they had different ideas of what was happening you know some of the women thought well we're training for a spaceflight program and some of them thought we're doing medical tests so what you needed to be an astronaut at the time the medical test was one part of it they didn't do all the parts of it nor were they this unit there's a lot of discord within this group actually
1: i know this was a private program but why was it Mm -hmm. that nasa showed no interest
3: First and foremost, again, we have to think in 1960s terms. No one knew what spaceflight was. No one had any idea if what the human body was going to do in space. If your reactions would be the same. If you know, space madness would be a thing. So there was a lot of of question about what makes. astronaut. And when NASA decided that a military test pilot was the best candidate, it was because military test pilots have to deal with experimental aircraft that are going at extremely high speeds at high altitudes, and they are good at making snap decisions. That was primary. And then we have to not forget that the race to the moon was part of the Cold War. And I think that opening it up to women at the time was just such a low priority for NASA but I really do think that at some point the agency was like, we'll deal with this after the moon because this was kind of a bigger thing. Also, let's consider 1960s sensitivities of, you know, to be somewhat indelicate. When the Apollo astronauts went to the washroom, they had to strip naked and tape a bag to their bottoms and use the quote unquote facilities. I don't know that anyone at the time would have been comfortable sending a woman up in that situation with no privacy.
1: NASA historian Jennifer Ross Nazel says Valentina Tereshkova's flight into space did little to change attitudes, which had been laid bare the year before, when Jerry Cobb had pushed four congressional hearings into whether NASA was discriminating on the basis of sex.
4: Here in the United States, I think many people looked at that flight as a publicity stunt, quite frankly. They didn't really take the idea of women flying in space quite seriously at that point, especially if you look at the hearings that were held with Jerry Cobb. You know, John Glenn, who had flown in space, he was the first American to orbit the Earth, talked about how men go off and fight the wars and women stay home. And, you know, the idea was that space was a place for men you know, I think Randy Lovelace was definitely interested in seeing women fly in space, but I still think he had opinions about the roles that women would play in space, not necessarily uh, an engineer or a scientist.
0: And liftoff, liftoff of STS-7,
4: and America's first woman astronaut. In the moment of ignition, there's absolutely nothing like it. There is so much power, so much thunder. You know that something you have no control over at all is happening for the next eight and a half minutes. There's uh, rocket fuel that's in a controlled explosion beneath you, but yet the experience is just
1: so new and so different that it seems like it's over in a heartbeat. Women finally broke through NASA's glass ceiling with the first intake of female astronauts in 1978. Five years later, physicist Sally Ride became America's first and the world's third woman in space, going on to spend 343 hours in space over her career. But in 1983, before her debut launch, many saw a woman, not an astronaut.
4: She really paved the way for so many women. In space. Nothing went wrong during her space flights. You know, there were a lot of men and reporters in particular who really thought maybe things might fall apart for her. If you've seen an interview with her during one of the press conferences prior to her flight, there was a question that was asked about. You know, what does she do when something doesn't go right during a simulation? You know, does she cry? Does she weep? Insinuating that she would
1: just fall to pieces. There was some suggestion that Sally Ride was sent up for six days with 100 tampons. Is that really the case or is that (laughs) a myth?
4: Funny that you asked that because I actually asked that question. She mentioned that, that, you know, there were some challenges being the first American woman in space. So she did tell us that there were about 100 tampons that she was presented with. Kathy Sullivan, who uh, she flew with on STS-41G, remembers going to this this bench check for STS-7. And she told me that Sally reaches into this bag and and rolls her eyes. That is the you've got to be kidding me look and starts pulling out like a bad circus act, like all of these pink wrapped tampons. Like just uh, she said, it was like a bad circus act, just constantly pulling and pulling and pulling and pulling
3: at some point there were speculations in newspapers that you know NASA would need once they did start sending women into space they would only want flat-chested women because they would be easier to put in a space suit but you know i think i think there's just a lot of a lot of questions about how to deal with women in space until they did and then realized oh women are just people and it's like yes Yet in
1: 2019, which is not that many years ago, there was a much-touted all-female spacewalk that was cancelled, and NASA found itself in the midst of a global controversy, really, accused of sexism because there was only one suitable spacesuit available for a female.
3: The spacesuits now um, are not custom-built. They kind of come in a, an average size. And humans come in different size. They ultimately had to cancel it because they didn't have two suits that would fit both of the crew members well, which is not necessarily a women thing so much as a poor planning thing. Since
1: those early days of space travel, women have been busy playing catch-up, which means they've been clocking up and continue to clock up a lot of firsts.
3: Go, Jeff, go, Mark, go, Wally, go, Oliver. You are going to space.
1: At the age of 82, Wally Funk became the oldest woman in space. She was one of the women involved in the Randy Lovelace project of the early 60s and was invited to join billionaire Blue Origin founder Jeff Bezos for his company's debut commercial spaceflight in 2021. It meant Wally Funk finally got the astronaut pin she'd been chasing for six decades.
3: I've been waiting a long time to finally get it up there, and I've done a lot of astronaut training through the world, Russia, America, and I could always beat the guys.
1: Commercial spaceflight is offering women new opportunities to break the glass ceiling. For NASA legend Peggy Whitson, the most experienced astronaut in US history it was a chance to return to space five years after her retirement.
0: Welcome home to Zero-G, Peggy. Good to be here. This is, it was a phenomenal ride. In
1: May, 63-year-old Peggy Whitson commanded Axiom 2, a privately funded six-day mission to the International Space Station, carrying three passengers, including a stem cell researcher who became the first Saudi female astronaut. She's
4: is- Broken a number of records. The first woman to command now a private space mission. She was the
1: first ISS science officer. There's obviously been many, many firsts, and there still continues <laughs> right. to be many, many firsts. There's a whole language around firsts for women, I think, in space.
4: There are. And, you know, what I find interesting is that when you talk to these women about being the first woman. I think Sally Ride captured it when she was first selected. You know, she basically said, it's too bad we're not that far along, that this is such a big deal. And I think that that is the case for so many of these female astronauts. They want to be recognized for the work that they're doing. For instance, when I spoke with Peggy Whitson about this several years ago, I was prepared for an amazing story about being the first woman astronaut to head the astronaut office. The bigger deal in her mind was the the fact that she was the first non-military astronaut to fill that position. She was a civilian. She was a scientist. Another one of those big moments, I think, was when Peggy Whitson was in space. She was a female commander of an expedition mission. And there was another commander in space at that time, and that was Pam Elroy. She was the commander of STS-120, and they happened to be in space at that moment. And so there's a great image of the two of them shaking hands. That was a really big deal, I think, because we only had two female commanders ever to fly the space shuttle during its 30-year history. Uh, We only had three women pilots, in fact. I think she just got the sense that it was so important for her to be in space and to be a woman in command because it made such a difference, such an influence on the younger generation.
1: As of the end of May, a total of 652 people have travelled in space, 570 men compared to 82 women. But it's not just a question of gender equity. It has a bearing on future space exploration. We
0: are ready. We are going to the moon for all humanity. We are Artemis.
1: The four astronauts chosen for NASA's Artemis II mission to the moon next year will fly farther from Earth than any person has gone before. For Christina Cook, it's another record among many in her space exploration career.
4: She has set a number of firsts, just like Peggy Whitson and and Sally Ride. She completed the longest single space flight by a woman for 328 days in space. And she also participated in the first all-female spacewalk. When she was selected in 2013, her class really demonstrated this huge sea change that you're seeing within the agency. And that's the fact that that class was... 50% male, 50% female. So they selected four women and four men, uh, which was highly unusual. When uh, the first women astronauts were selected in 78, there were 35 people selected, and six of those included women.
1: During that record-long space flight, Christina Cook wasn't only doing science. She volunteered to be a research subject allowing other scientists to observe the effects of long-duration spaceflight as NASA prepares to return to the Moon and for flight beyond. Dr Egbert Edelbroek, the founder of a Dutch-based space research company, says there's a gender data gap which needs to be tackled not only by space agencies, but space tourism companies in the future.
0: There's these numerous studies that have shown that adaptation to the space environment's really differs between men and women, all kinds of difference uh, in in, in organ systems, cardiovascular, the immune system, bones, muscles, G-tolerance, behavioral uh, alterations. So it's really important to study those to enable more women to go to space and to come back in a healthy way. There's also differences in in, uh, radiation resistance between men and women. The agencies completely are very aware of the opportunities of involving more women in space. It it has just been more complex to study the female body and the female biology and see how they can protect women also. And space tourism is a market. There's money to be uh, earned for these space tourism companies. So they also have incentive to make that possible in a safe way. And that will indeed also contribute to Uh, scientific discoveries that will uh, enable a more equal presence of women and men in space.
1: Australia's first female astronaut, Megan Christian, who's been selected as a reserve trainee by the European Space Agency, is all too aware of the gender data gap.
2: Yeah, that is definitely a problem and I can actually speak to that personally because I did a winter over in Antarctica at Concordia Station and at that base, the European Space Agency does tests on the winter over crew because it's very similar conditions to what a group of astronauts would have going to Mars, for example. The base is also called White Mars. And in my year, there were three women and 10 men, which is actually quite a high ratio for the past few years. But because there's such a small amount of women that have been doing these tests, there are a lot of the tests that we're not actually allowed to do because of problems of anonymity. So it's actually really similar, so not just the testing in spaces, but also analogue missions.
1: And this is important because what we are seeing is rapid developments of the commercial space sector, and clearly that's going to provide more opportunities for more women to be in space, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think on the one hand, it will create more opportunities for people to go into space in general. I think on the other hand, we have to be really careful because there is still on many occasions a gender pay gap. So perhaps not as many women will be able to take this opportunity, perhaps because of stereotypical attitudes that we hear about of of women being uh, less willing to put themselves forward. Perhaps it will be a little bit more difficult for women to enter into that. The future of mankind is being decided behind
1: closed doors. In laboratories all over the world, scientists are... The
2: working development on of the commercial
1: space industry is driving an ambitious goal to colonise space. Egbert Adelbrook and his company Spaceborne United is involved in a project that sounds like it's come straight out of the pages of science fiction.
0: Spaceborne United researches and enables the different stages of reproduction in space. And eventually, we aim to enable human reproduction. We've been working on this for about six years now, and we are focusing on on the very first stage of reproduction, so the conception, the fertilization, and the first days of embryo development. So we're focusing a lot on IVF, in vitro fertilization, And we have our first IVF in space prototype finished for a couple of months now. And we have prepared it to go on board a space rocket to be launched in August into space. It's a test flight that we are joining. And then we move on to an orbital mission where we will actually have biological samples on board so mammalian uh, gametes sperm and eggs and actually perform ivf in space as the agencies like nasa and ESA, many others are preparing independent human settlements on other planets like mars that means that we also need to be able to reproduce there this is ethically complex there are all these uh, legal constraints for good reasons So you really have to take this step by step and eventually uh, we want to be able to cover the full uh, nine-month reproduction cycle, which eventually also includes even childbirth in space.
1: While Spaceborne United is focused on assisted reproductive technology, it's concerned about the lack of conversation around space tourism and the risk of men and women having sex in space. In April, Researchers from Cranfield University in the UK, who are working with Spaceborne United, published a paper urging commercial space companies to address the issue.
0: It's going to be a magnet for couples or even nations to try to make a baby in space. They might be interested in claiming to have enabled the very first human child uh, in space in a natural way. There will be uh, uh, several health risks for the developing embryo and eventually also for the mother. So, we think we should warn the space tourism sector to address this.
1: It's a space future that still seems far-fetched, or at the very least, a long, long way off. For now, the opportunities for aspiring female astronauts rest largely with the global space agencies as the split between male and female trainees moves closer to equality. Late last year, when the European Space Agency revealed its first training group in 12 years, two women and three men were granted missions. Australia's Megan Christian is one of seven women and five men from the class of 2022, named as a reserve astronaut.
2: ESA, the European Space Agency, doesn't follow the NASA model of recruiting a lot of astronauts and training everybody, and maybe some of them won't get to fly. They only train people that they have flights for. So at the moment, they have five flights available, but they wanted to have a bigger class because there's a lot of things happening in space.
1: What have you found in terms of barriers for women in the space sector? Do you see that there is still a glass ceiling for women?
2: I haven't personally experienced this glass ceiling, but I have only been in the space sector for a very, very short amount of time. And I've certainly read reports of this still happening. There being a lot of prejudice against women and looking into science in general, physics in particular, people still look at you strangely if you say that you're a physicist and a woman.
1: As an aspiring astronaut, how do you view the importance or the significance of the lunar mission?
2: I think it's absolutely fundamental that there's a woman. And I hope that on Artemis three there will also be at least one woman out of the crew that lands on the moon.
1: Australia's first female astronaut, Megan Christian. My other guests were space historian, Amy Shearer Title, NASA historian, Jennifer ross Nazal and Spaceborne United founder, Egbert Edelbrook. This Rear Vision was produced by me, Cathy Van Extel, and sound engineer, Bella Tropiano for ABCRN.